The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. Uh, with those words, uh, roughly paraphrased from Gramsci, I welcome you to the uh, Time of Monsters podcast, hosted by The Nation magazine and widely available wherever one listens to podcasts. Um, for this week's episode, the sort of monsters I want to talk about are big pharma and uh, the giants of sort of biocapitalism who um, are increasingly seeing a lucrative market uh, to be had in genetic information and are um, trying to scoop up as much information about uh, uh, people's genes and genetic background that they can have um, and are often have the aid of companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, which are nominally selling uh, people information about their own genes. But in fact, the, the, the customer is the product that uh, in giving um, a license for them to do research on you, uh, that also gives uh, them the right to sell that data. Um, and this is part of a sort of general trend of capitalism that one sees in the, the end of the 20th and the early days of the 21st century, that information is uh, capital, information is power. And um, uh, my thinking on all this has been uh, very uh, deeply informed by um, a paper that was written by Miles Jackson uh, that's going to appear in an upcoming volume uh, called The Ownership of Knowledge Beyond Intellectual Property that's coming out by MIT Press in 2023. Um, and uh, Miles Jackson is the uh, Albert Schoenberg Professor in the History of Science at the Institute of Advanced Studies, uh, which is affiliated uh, in a complicated way that I don't think our podcast can even get into with Princeton <laughs> University. Uh, but he's also recently elected to the German National Academy of Science and Engineering. He's a very distinguished uh, historian of science. And as I said, he wrote this paper on ownership, uh, knowledge, and genetic information, um, which goes into this. So for, for, for the, um, I mean, the real meat of the discussion is the way in which Big Pharma is going to exploit this um, uh, data, which is really the sort of collective inheritance of humanity. I mean, it is, in some sense, humanity itself. Uh, and uh, they're claiming a sort of proprietary uh, uh, ownership of the very stuff that makes you and me what we are. And that's a very sort of sinister development. But may maybe we could sort of just start off by defining some terms and get some, some necessary background. So, so, so when we're talking about biocapitalism, um, what exactly do we mean? Oh, and I should, before I proceed further, uh, in this conversation, we'll also be joined by my friend uh, Doug Bell, uh, the Canadian journalist, a frequent guest here. And uh, Doug is very well versed in this, and I think we'll probably be taking uh, a lead role in the conversation as we proceed. But but uh, Miles, uh, uh, Professor Jackson, I should say, uh, <laughs> how do we, uh, 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 what do we mean by biocapitalism? Gene, many thanks for, for this invitation. And Doug, uh, thanks for, for uh, hooking us up. Um, and you don't have to call me Professor Jackson. I'm a laborer at heart, so you can call me Miles. Um, <clears throat> yeah, biocapitalism, it's a, a fascinating field. Uh, it's a it's a economic doctrine. It's a political doctrine. It owes much to two great thinkers. One, on the one hand, obviously, Karl Marx, Das Kapital, where he's interested in the dynamics of labor and commodities. On the other hand, it's uh, we throw in Michel Foucault, for good power, things like bio, for good measure, things like biopower from his um, 
l'histoire de la uh, sexualité, right? the, the history of sexuality. And biopower is the ability of nation states to, to control, to manage their subjects' bodies. So what it is, it's about, it's, as I said, it's an economic and political doctrine in which biological molecules are become commodities. So things like stem cell, stem cells are commodities. Uh, proteins, anti antibiotics, uh, mRNA vaccines are commodities. And the stuff I've worked on, genes uh, become commodities. So intellectual property law in a sense, offer the legal and, and the, the, the technical tools that result in the commodification of, of this, the subjects of labor. And intellectual property also give us tools that structure the biotech world. Um, and the other critical ask component of it is really the importance of alienation, because the people who give their DNA samples do not reap the reward. They get no benefit from giving their giving their samples to 23andMe or Ancestry DNA, other than they might find out that have a predisposition to a certain disease, or they might find out that they're 27% German, whatever the heck that means. Yeah, no, I, I so I that's a very good sort of start, and I think from uh, what you've said, um, it's the um, the main sort of site of power contestation here is the courts. That uh, they um, it's a legal system that is kind of deciding who gets to own genetic information, genetic knowledge, um, right. and as you said, said it's often not. Like what? Uh, what um, I think a layperson might automatically assume that they themselves own the uh, own themselves, right? Like, like you know, this is a fundamental uh, concept of even like liberalism of self ownership. Uh, but um, the the courts have kind of um, uh, played a role in shaping um, uh, what property rights are in an age of genetic information. Um, and do you want to like maybe lay that out because I think that's like crucial for understanding uh, what's happening. Sure. So it the it goes back really to the 1980s uh, when a lot of bad things happened. Um, the idea was that we were in we were beginning to have the techniques that would lead to the development of the human genome and the human genome project. It started in 1990. So in the 80s, we were able to sequence genes, and the idea was that molecular biology gene therapy was going to be the way in which we now treat diseases that has not come to fruition as we know for various interesting historical and political reasons but the idea was that you had these sequencing companies that basically only sequenced genes they had no other entities they had no gadgets or widgets right but they had value in information information was their their commodity so the courts decided that maybe it's time that we patent genes, make genes patentable. In the early days, you had to deposit your gene uh, into a data bank. Um, the European um, um, uh, uh, Patent uh, Office and the Japanese Patent Office at first were rather skeptical that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office were going to do this, but then decided that they had a patent. Otherwise, all the research and development would go to the United States. So the courts have been patent friendly to the biotech sector in general, whether it's big pharma that actually has the physical genes or the information of the sequence companies, because the belief was that by investing in it will spur innovation, will we'll create uh, discoveries, right, um, and will benefit and also become an economic boom to the nation and indeed the world. And I think that that kind of very liberal attitude of the courts of the 1980s 
and you know, starting in the late '90s and early 2000s, came back and, and bit us in the proverbial took us, um, and 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 people have begun to see that. Doug. I'm 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 racing to to get in on this because I, I the, uh, uh, biting in the tuchus is about right. Um, one of the things that struck me in the course of reading your papers, you lay out very sensibly and 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 concisely the the key court cases yep. uh, that establish these protocols. And I, I one of the things that struck me was, and if I can just use a a a, a, a sort of layman's term here, I, I wonder whether the courts are looking at the problem the through the wrong end of the telescope in some in some respect because they've taken a, a kind of liberal view, uh, or sorry, they've taken. They've taken a view that that ostensibly suggests that the best interests of the society at large need to be taken into consideration. Hence, an, one individual can't dictate or, you know, gather all the financial gain from his specific DNA. Mm -hmm. But, <laughs> and it's a big but, um, one of the lines in your piece, uh, uh, which which really struck me, was you you say, "quote Big Pharma has a vested interest in ascertaining which populations will respond best to certain medications." Yes, which is a, a, a sensible kind of a, a synopsis of their extensive view. But I do wonder, and I and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this: is is whether it might better be put, uh, or, or, or do they have a vested interest in ascertaining? which populations are willing to pay the most mm -hmm. for certain medications mm -hmm. and and whether the courts are coming to grips with with you know the 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 uh, the consequences of for lack of a better term late capitalism the concentration of wealth wealth coming into fewer and fewer hands and fewer mm -hmm. and fewer people being simply able to afford even to be able to afford these kinds of healthcare solutions right, right. so uh, so two basically two themes to that question one is there, you're absolutely right. The, the three court cases in the 90s and 2000s that gave, in a sense, a type of ownership to genetic sequencing companies of your DNA. To be clear, they don't own your DNA. They don't own the material bit of your DNA. They probably don't want the material bit of your DNA. But the information that encodes for the stuff, when you get your, when you go to 23andMe, you, when you say, yes, they may use your your information for research, you can decline out of it. And I recommend that people do not permit research because it's a lot of it's going to be uh, they're selling information to uh, insurance companies or big pharma. The argument was a fascinating is the classic case was one in 1990 California State Supreme Court. It was Jim Moore versus the University of California Board of Regents. Jim Moore was. Um, um, uh, a male from Washington state who had a very rare disease called hairy cell leukemia. And he went to UCLA for treatment because one of the major treatment centers in the United States for that particular disease. And he went over a course of like seven or eight years in the seventies and the eighties. Unbeknownst to him, the doctor, Dr. Gould, developed a, a, a cell line from those cells. And, and Jim Moore found out that he patented that cell line and made quite a lot of money from that cell line, right? And so Jim Moore said, I'm going to sue you because that's my body. Uh, give me a piece of the action, mate. And you never told me that you were going to sell for profit my, 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 my part of my body. The court decided that the, that the, the cells now belong to UCLA, 
because and it was really fascinating with several arguments. One, the most important argument was a public safety rule, which said that you do not own your body if something is excised out of it, because it might be like, I don't know, an infected kidney. And it'd be really bad if you went home and had your infected kidney and showed it to like your son and your daughter and your love, you know, your wife and your husband say, oh, look, you want to see my diseased kidney? What? Two of the judges in the, of, the, of the California State Supreme Court said it's bizarre that the majority has ruled that this is a, a case of public safety. Another person who's, who agreed in, in, a, in a subsequent decision, which was um, with Dr. Catalone, and, and it was about prostate cancer samples, he basically said the problem is if the person who previously owned the material decide, has a right in determining what happens with it, he or she can say, look, I only want to have this pit of my body given to men or Caucasian Americans, however that's defined, or whatever. So one judge said that we feel that that person has too much power. And in the end, you're thwarting the biomedical research community because you're you're restricting access, which I think, Doug, you're getting at because uh, patents actually, and my colleague Mildred Cho at Stanford Med School shows that patents actually, gene patents actually decrease information. There's actually an increase in secrecy, which is the exact opposite of what patents are supposed to do, right? It's a quid pro quo, not to coin a phrase ever since Trump used it, which is to say, <laughs> I give you the information of my invention in exchange, the government makes sure that no one tries to pirate it for now it's 20 years from the point of application. The bit, uh, the second bit is this notion of, you know, the accessibility. And, and so, and the interesting thing is that it's a classic example story of neoliberalism because it's not just big pharma. It's also about the government giving power to these corporations. Um, and sometimes unintentionally or or they give them power but the way in which they give them power or try to take away power turns against the the, the general good let me give you an example it was in 1993 when the national institutes of health uh proposed actually proposed earlier in the 90s the revitalization act which said that if you're a if you're a biomedical researcher getting uh national money you are required to include uh, men and women in your in your research, as well as people of color. So this was actually a very liberal idea. The notion is that the white male is no longer the universal symbol of healthcare, and that's very liberal, right? I mean, let's increase information about women and about people of color. At first, big pharma balked at this and saying, you know, this is socialism. Footnote: It's not really socialism. But the argument is, how dare the government come in and tell us what to do? And it's really my my, my colleague, um, uh, the author of uh, Impure Science, um, has, has, has really researched this brilliantly. After about six months, they basically stopped. It's Stephen Epstein is the, the, the author of Impure Science. They basically stopped saying, oh, this is socialism. And they play along the game. They play along. Why? Because race creates markets. Right? Yes. So the first ever medication approved for African-Americans who've had a, a heart attack so they don't have a second heart attack was Bidil in 2005. So Big Pharma then says, this is great because we now know that one size doesn't fit all. The white male is no longer the, the universal healthcare symbol. 
We need information on African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, right? Um, uh, Asian-Americans, uh, Native Americans, right? So we'll do this. We'll, we'll follow along. And they actually create in markets. Now, granted, there is economic disparities between those markets, but they still think that they can certainly get funding and they can also target communities and therefore increase their messaging about all drugs to these to these groups which historically have been uh, uh marginalized by big pharma for example classically if you go to at times 23 and me will target certain communities where they want more information classically african americans have historically been far less likely to give bits of their body to medical science ever since Tuskegee, and understandably so, right? So the argument that Big Pharma is like, okay, sins of the past, we get this, we want to be inclusive, we want to add you, and they market. Again, by, it turns out Bidil helped, helped basically anyone who's had a heart attack not get a second heart attack, but by arguing for a race specificity or treatment of a particular race, they were also able to prolong the patent, therefore it did not become a generic. So that's an interesting side story. So your so dug into your question is that the 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 notion of that yes there 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 are certain populations that they they are more lucrative to them than others without a doubt. Um, but their argument is that they can increase accessibility, increase advertisement to those communities and say, look, we're trying to help out. You are on our side. Give us your information so that we can then use that information to sell to Big Pharma, since Big Pharma is interested in finding out if the African-American population will uh, will respond to a, the with what efficacy to a certain drug. Right. So the argument is. We're never going to have, we used to call it personalized medicine. There's no big pharma company in the world that's going to cater to every one of us. This is Miles Jackson. He needs this, 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 this drug. This is Doug Belly. This, that, that ain't going to happen. And so you have that. N is equal to 7 billion, whatever, 8 billion. Or you have N is equal to one. We know one size doesn't fit all. So we need a carrot. We need a heuristic tool by which we, we separate out populations in the United States, what's that race? Yeah, no, that's so interesting because, um, the, you know, the, I guess, impracticality or unwillingness to do uh, sort of uh, the personal medicine um, makes race a very useful thing because you do have large enough categories that are also, <laughs> as you say, markets. And there's a way in which, um, you know, th this really does uh, show how race is sort of socially, not just socially constructed, but replicated. That you know, yes. you already have an existing racial groups and disparities and histories and cultures, and then you can sort of um, uh, make it. And um, so, I think for listeners, um, there's some sort of cultural phenomenons that they might have noticed uh, in recent years, which is the increased emphasis on uh, DNA as a source of identity and sort of. Uh, communal knowledge. And one sees that, you know, with all the ads for these companies like 23andMe um, and Ancestry. Uh, but also, I mean, like PBS has a sort of show um, uh, with uh, uh, Skip Gates. Skip Gates. Skip Gates. Henry Louis Gates. Uh, you know, where, where, you know, they take celebrities like mm -hmm. Stephen Colbert and then they, yep. they trace their DNA. And, and uh, you know, like on the one hand, it's sort of responding to a natural 
uh, uh, thing that people have uh, have always had of wanting to know about their family and found not wanting to know about their history, perhaps increased in a sort of atomized, you know, neoliberal world where they yes. don't necessarily have these family connections, and especially exasperated by you know the particular history of American racism, where like a, a lot of you know a lot of the work of American racism was to destroy family knowledge, to separate That's out right. families exactly and, right. and separate out genealogies. So so you have this sort of natural base of people that you know want for their own personal and communal reasons to know their family history and but big pharma seeing this as like oh you know this is a market <laughs> this is like this is, and it's, it's, it's the market which like in exploiting like they will like then also reify and replicate you know existing uh um, uh categories of race like so, so it seems like you know you know what there's a sort of dialectic here. There's a sort of positive, you know, like race consciousness that's coming out of the civil rights movement, but yes. is now being, I think, and and then coming out of liberal appreciation of diversity, but is now like very ripe for being exploited by big pharma. That's exactly right. Is, so, that, is that fair? Is that? Uh... Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, I, so the class, there's a great commercial. I mean, so for any of your audience, go to Ancestry.com, go to YouTube commercial. The best ones are Ancestry.com. So there's one that I give this talk in German, and it's great as kind of a counter offer, a counter audience. Because I use the term race in German, Rassen, and they already start getting nervous. And then I show them these commercials and they're just like, whoa. So one is a very funny one about a guy who thought he was Scottish, does uh, Ancestry.com. Turns out there are all these Germans coming out of his tree as a great phrase, because that's apparently where Germans are. Um, and he says, I turned in my kilt for later hosen. And that's funny. And it, the next one's about an African-American woman who wants to know where her strength is from. And she shows part of her family is from uh, uh, parts of Africa with very strong women leadership. And she said, I found the strength in my genes. So this is very much a the note, you know, kind of a cultural identity that's based on biology. And that's why a lot of my colleagues in anthropology and sociologists go, whoa, you know, we have problems with this. We don't even like to talk about the notion of race anymore. So what happens is a lot of times, you know, molecular biologists in these journals will use race and, eth and ethnicity interchangeably without noticing the rather important difference between between those definitions. Um, so, yeah, I think this is, I mean, big pharma picked this up very quickly. They basically said, aha, we've got to help those who've been marginalized. We can create markets. We can target certain communities. This is a win-win situation. That's why um, uh, GlaxoSmithKline in 2018 gave $300 million. Uh, it, was a it was an equity investment to 23andMe for information uh, for, of, of, of certain bits of genetic information that 23andMe had. And just a, just a few months ago, or just a few weeks ago, they've uh, given an extra $50 million to increase their access for another year. This is, this, is, this is a lot of money, but Big Pharma, I mean, GlaxoSmithKline realizes that this is going to be a huge payoff, potentially in the tens of billions, right? I mean, uh, uh, personalized medicine right now has a uh, is worth about a half a trillion dollars worldwide. In the United States, the market in the United States alone is between 89 and 90 billion right now. So it's unbelievable. Sorry, Doug. Yep. So so on that, but on that point, I mean, I, the, 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 just to, to to back the truck up a bit. I mean, 
the, those cases, those original cases that were found on, on, as you suggested, sort of liberal principles, often, and in one particular instance I remember, made reference to the fact that the idea that someone could use their claim to their own genetic material as a basis for selecting right. uh, certain kinds of research going forward. Is right? morally repugnant. It's morally repugnant to any ethical conception uh, uh, that uh, medical research is for the benefit of all mankind. Right. Yes. I think it was the good of all mankind. In fact, is yeah. the term that they used. Now that's a that's a high flying kind of uh, possibly overreach <laughs> on the part of the court. But you know, as Jeet suggested in, in the introduction, I mean, the thing is, is that this is the very material of human uh, 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 of life. Yes. Race, not you know, race notwithstanding, this is this goes beyond race, mm -hmm. and and it, there's just something about the idea that big pharma is using this sort of rhetoric of inclusion, right, as a way of establishing their quote unquote liberal credentials mm -hmm. without any reference to the broader social implication, the broader social context. Because I mean, I'm sorry, but capitalism is capitalism. You know, this guy that went, I'm forgetting his name, the guy that went to prison for for jumping the drug up uh, from a buck to 6,000 bucks of treatment, whatever the guy's yes, name was, right? That story, which was so, you know, clearly repugnant. Morally repugnant. <laughs> Morally repugnant. And yet doesn't seem to be entirely out of phase with what Big Pharma is up to here. Um, in, in, in that respect. And, and just one, uh, and an annex to that question, if I may, I'm sorry, I'm going on. But one of the really, again, a, a really striking uh, passage in your in your uh, uh, paper dealt with the, the notion, and I, I'm just going to read from it. Historians are obliged to address the unequal power relations between the actors in order to illustrate the politics of ownership, precisely because historians are best placed to illustrate that there are all, that there there always have been alternatives and that nothing is inevitable. They should not be at that tape. They, they should be at any table where this discussion is taking place. Now, yes. given everything I've just said as a sort of foreground, are historians required to take a, uh, to take a, to take a side in this, in this, in this uh, 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 case? That's they a very fair, in, the, in the fight. That's a very fair question, Doug. And, and I, not all like, historians would agree with me. Right. Um, a lot of historians would say you have to wait till the dust settles or as we would say, you reach closure uh, and then tell the story. Right. Um, I disagree. I think I mean, I was a molecular biologist in a previous life because I thought history was absolutely irrelevant. Other than say in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We could teach apes to do that shit. Right. Why? I'm sorry, I probably wouldn't say a dirty word cut. Um, <laughs> but but um, but then I realized, no, history that had really smart uh, people at university saying history is about interpretation, right? History is about representation, which has a political dimension, as in the House of Representatives, right? So I feel morally obliged. Now, I say be objective. I, I, mean, I don't know what it means to be objective. All I mean, I, I played a role... I, I wrote a deposition for the ACLU in the court case with myriad genetics, and the breast cancer genes. I co-authored an amicus curiae brief for the U.S. Supreme Court saying what I'm about to say is I believe and is historically accurate. I personally think historians should, you know, be in the fight. 
I don't think we should turn our backs on it. Do I think all historians who are going to want that? No, there are there are historians who have a dust fetish that believe the the goal of history is to tell wie es eigentlich gewesen ist, one of the mis, misquoted quotes of Ranke in the history of humankind. I think that historians, precisely as I say in the paper, I that when I was working with the ACLU, myriad genetics lawyers said it's inevitable that genes will be patented because that's because you need to have an intellectual property system in order to make a large sum of money, right? For invest, investment. Mm -hmm. To which I then responded by saying, as a German historian, I can tell you that the leading country in pharmaceuticals in 1905 was Germany. They owned a ridiculous share of the market, over 90%. Well, a lot of people don't realize that chemicals and drugs were not allowed to be patented in Germany at that time. Only processes could be patented because the Germans said by patenting products, it's immoral because then you could charge prices for medications that became in the hands of the patent owners, right? The Germans got that right. They changed the law later on in the 30s when everything became irretrievably evil. But it's not it's not inevitable that if you patent something, you're going to profit from it. There are examples in history, and historians, colleagues, there are times when patents have been phenomenally profitable to companies and to research. There are other times when they are not. So any kind of blanket statement about how patents will increase uh, innovation, as a historian, I'm saying you have to show me particular cases. I can give you cases where that's not the case. And indeed, there are examples where people had patents on genes, particularly genes that were potentially lead to blockbuster drugs that did not share their information until they literally could capitalize on other bits such as testing and therapeutics. And that's a classic example, because the only thing a patent guarantees you is protection against other people from doing what it is you patented or using whatever it is you patented, right? So, so what I'm worried about now is that gene patents are a bit passe. They were in the 19, 1990s, early 2000s, where, where big pharma or biomedical researchers in general, this would be myriad genetics, they have... They, they'll say, okay, you're going to take away patents or make it more difficult to patent genes. That's fine. We'll have data banks of information on gene mutants that are now the are now proprietary. You don't have access to them because you don't work for the company, right? So even if you do away, we've done away, like I said, gene patents, you know, even though the U.S. Supreme Court didn't do away with gene patents, you have to make a cDNA copy. Most people I know in the field, including professors at research universities, said, Gene patenting is going to be problematic in the future. Let's seek other ways of other bits of intellectual property or other alternatives that will continue our hegemony over a market. And so, like I said, there I, I don't know if it's still the case, but after the myriad genes were struck down and the, the, only the cDNA copy set up, myriad genetics was ready. They basically said, okay, fine. We've had a decade, uh, at least a decade, over a decade of a head start on studying the mutations of the two breast cancer genes, the mutations that lead to cancer, we'll make it proprietary. You can't use my our database unless you work for us. Yeah, like, just one quick follow-up on that, and 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 not to be too sort of blunt about it, but I mean, I hear you saying that, or I feel like you're saying that ultimately, if there is going to be genuine equity in any system, as it's current, you know, pitching it forward, yeah. and the, given the momentum of, of genetic research. That that ultimately, if you want to 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 
propagate or promulgate this idea of health as a you know a broad equity issue in any society. The only way you're going to get there is at the ballot box. You're not going to get there through the courts. I think uh, yes, I think that's exactly right. The key, as you rightly mentioned, Doug, is accessibility. And that's why when I did all this work for ACLU, I mean, people thought I was anti-gene patent. I was not. I have a lot of friends. I have friends. I have a lot of friends who are molecular biologists to this day who have patents. And they say, use my patent, but give me a dollar. Or use my patent and cite me and cite what I did in a footnote. Because now, and I've, I've been on too many tenure committees at engineering schools or in for scientists in the school of natural in, in the College of Arts and Sciences, patents now are part of the cycle of credibility for pro professionalization, right? So yet we take that away, that's a huge move. Where we go after it, because to me, have as many patents as you want, whatever floats your boat. If you want to increase accessibility, you don't destroy patents, you basically go to the ballot box and vote to to really trim back licensing agreements. A vast majority of the patents in biomedical research are not problematic at all because people say, I mean, I know some leading scientists who get less than $100 a year on numerous patent royalties, right? They're like, we're not in it for the, we ain't in it for the dosh, mate, right? Or just cite me. That way people know that my work is relevant to what it is you're doing, right? It's the rare cases where you have something like, you know, breast cancer gene patents or various genes for deafness, things that that goes back to your point, Doug, things that, you know, that are first world industrialized world problems, they're going to be the ones that get researched. They're the ones with the licensing fees. If you're interested in tropical medicine, big pharma really doesn't have many, many, many irons in that fire. Not surprisingly, right? Most of the top-notch research on top tropical medicine done by nonprofits such as universities or other nonprofits. So in that sense, it is, you know, we're going to be going after the medications where we know we can get a large a, a return. So heart disease, hypertension, Alzheimer's. If we can find genetic markers for those things, those that's blockbust. Those are billion-dollar-plus uh, 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 revenues. Yeah, and, and I'm glad and, you and brought up you... the, uh, the tropical disease thing because I mean it seems like the court decisions, as you you know, outline your paper and have discussed here, are kind of conflating you know the good of uh, big pharma with the good of humanity at large, and saying that these are it's like you know the old Eisenhower line, you know, what's good for General Motors is good for America, but even extended, what's good for uh, big pharma is good for humanity, but obviously right. you know like you know big pharma is motivated by profit and they're not necessarily pursuing the interests of humanity. Um, and, and so, so I mean, again, uh, as Doug and you have both pointed out, this points towards uh, the need for a political solution or, you know, like sort of, some sort of political intervention to, uh, you know, bring the uh, resources of science towards what is actually good for humanity. Right. As we've already seen, like even with, you know, like with COVID, right? Like it's, it's uh, you need a political intervention to like, you know, uh, push uh, research in the direction that it has to go. Right. And just, I mean, look, I'm not a, God knows I'm not a big fan of big pharma, but the three quick cases I make uh, that I talk about aren't about big pharma. These decisions were made by universities, yes. right? That were people doing research at universities. They then become the standard for big pharma to exploit. So I do think the judge, you know, the moral repugnant argument is 
I think he might, I, I, I have no doubt that he really believes that. And it's true. I just don't think they understood the ramifications of how that ruling would then subsequently be taken up by people who had much greater commercial interests. Because I mean, I mean, universities patent a lot of research. I mean, after the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, universities got uh, technology transfer offices and hired intellectual property lawyers and make a large sum of money, right? So, it, uh, and to be fair to Big Pharma, which I hate to be, um, they're not the only ones. I mean, they're they they're certainly guilty and are much more efficient at being guilty as others. But the origins of the accessibility of the court, the cases I struck. Are not big pharma. They're about university people doing university research at universities. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to be fair, and you, you actually said this. I mean, the thing is, is that the pools of capital that that were available to universities at that stage were not the pools of capital. Not were orders of magnitude less <laughs> right. than what big right. pharma. That's right. And, and and so, I mean, you can imagine that that universities actually did imagine themselves as having a kind of. Uh, and they still do. I mean, to a degree, they they, they see themselves being public oriented. Right. Uh, much uh, more uh, so than big pharma. Yes, much more so than big pharma. But I mean, Princeton University has a, a you know their pool of capital now is forty five or forty billion dollars. Yep, it wasn't forty billion dollars in nineteen eighty five. No, right. No. So that the 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 sort of construct of their arguments and the the underlying you know the the the, the sort of superstructure of their thinking is going to be different. Is different. That's correct. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. No, no. I mean, yeah. In some ways, universities themselves are becoming hedge funds. <laughs> so, right. so yeah, they, I mean, that's why <laughs> the fact that we don't pay taxes because we're non because universities are nonprofits. I try to explain that to the Germans. Like, universities are nonprofits, and Harvard's at the top of this. What is Harvard now? In fifty billions, although they lost. Yeah. And they're down, but for the first time this past year, I think for the first time uh, in many many years. I'll um, I'll shed no tears. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the, the, to sort of uh, um, maybe draw some of the larger things, I think I think in your work is a fascinating thing that um, it, it parallels, I think, like larger developments in capitalism, uh, where, you know, what's valuable is uh, data more than like physical property, right? Like, so, so in some ways, they're happy to leave the, the lab work and the uh, actual genes to like, let's leave that to the universities, let them dirty their hands with that. What we want is the information and the, and, and yeah, for listeners, I mean, uh, the parallels to draw are with like the sort of the internet and with social media where like, you know, when you're using anything like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, they're collecting data on you and That's it's right. the data you... that is the profitable thing. And That's right. The um, what's less known, and I think what your paper brings out, is that the same process is involved uh, with the genetics, with things like Twenty Three and Me and Ancestry.com. That you know, like you think that you're going to you are paying for a service of finding out your genetic heritage, and but actually you are the product. You're your it's your value to big pharma, and this is the means which they get it. Um, so I, 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 so that seems like that sort of um, a crucial thing. The other thing I want to maybe, I, I think came up in our conversation before, is like, how reliable are any of these things? Like like, like when you go to 23andMe and they say like, you're, you know, 132 Cherokee and, you know, 14% Mongolian and 36% German, like, like, can you actually rely on that? 
So to your first point, you're absolutely, it is about information. That's why, why there's a new field called bioinformatics. I'm old. When I was a molecular biologist, you had to get your hands dirty, make your own acrylamide gels and all that. Uh, the field has changed immensely. Uh, and also uh, for those listening, just if you want to know the relationship between 23andMe and Google, Google it. You'll see there is a very intense relationship between <laughs> Google and 23andMe. And that's not coincidental. So it is about the information age. Um, and it's information. The money, amount of money that 23andMe makes from selling their test kits, which generally from $50 to two, is peanuts compared to the money that they generate from selling access to big pharma or insurance companies, right? We didn't mention insurance companies at all. Um, as for the accuracy, I would take these things with a large grain of sodium chloride, as I would say, um, because the FDA doesn't give a hoot about that bit. I mean, if you're doing, I mean, in 23andMe got in big trouble for this, they would actually give medical advice early on without FDA approval, and they were sued by a woman in California. They now have FDA approval. Twenty uh, Ancestry did offer health testing in 2019, and then they revoked it in 2020. They just didn't feel that was worth it. Um, so if you're an Italian-American, there's a pretty high chance it's going to be very accurate because they have a lot of samples from Italians who've been in Naples for five generations, right? I had, when I was teaching at NYU, I had students and I told them, it's up to you. I can't require you to do this. I'll probably go to jail. But two students said, I want to do 23andMe and do it in Ancestry and compare. And although they both had the same ethnicities, they had the percentages. To, one had this person being 25% from uh, the Persian region. The other had 80%, right? Um, and it turns out if you're from a part of the world where 23andMe or Ancestry doesn't have a lot of samples, it's going to be way out of order, right? It's going to be out of whack. So that's why I had a colleague uh, who was the, is a great Ukrainian historian, went to the Ukraine, sent me an email, Miles, I see about 10 trucks of 23andMe giving free blood tests to people in this remote village because they're apparently rich Ukrainian Americans who want to know where their ancestors are from. So if you're from part of the world where, you know, Ireland, Italy, where there are a lot of a lot of rich people in the United States want to know where they're from or Germany, they're pretty accurate. Uh, if you're from a part of the world where, where 23andMe and Ancestry haven't gone, I would highly, highly problematic. I just I just want to interject on that slightly to the side, but I think sort of dovetailing with what you're talking about many years ago in the midst of time, like 10 I think 10 years ago, I had a conversation with one of your colleagues, uh, 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 Miles, a guy called pa uh, Patrick Geary. Patrick Geary, yes. Still, I think he's still He's emeritus, but he's still working on the on projects. So, yes. And the, the, it was just one of these kind of cocktail party things. And 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 we, we it was the very early stages of this kind of testing for 23. Yes. I, and I don't even remember if 23 and me existed at that point, but there was some discussion. It was in the air that this stuff was going on. And for whatever reason, I, it just came up and I sort of started talking about it. I, I guess I knew that Gary had some interest in this area. Yes. And he, his response was, was really stayed with me. First of all, I started being jokey about it and he was not the least bit jokey about it. And the re his, his major, uh, uh, objection, which really stayed with me, was he said, you know, the thing with these tests, right? So you go out, you get the test, and it says you're from such and such a part of the world. Yep. And let's say they say you're from Croatia, 
right? And then you start thinking if you're in your, you know, if you're a younger man, you might start thinking, well, now what, to what degree am I as a consequence of not now knowing that I'm from Croatia, uh, um, uh, subject to certain kinds of, now admittedly, Croatia might not be the best example, although I, I, it's just not a terrible example. There, there might be certain kind of predispositions that I would have as a Croatian to certain kinds of behavior, right? And we kind of know what those behaviors are in the, from the war and so forth. Right. That's maybe not the best example, but, but Gary said, that's going to have an effect psychologically on a person as right. they move forward through life, even if it's residual. Is it worth it? Right. And and I gotta say, in the moment, I was kind of like, uh, you know, you're overstating and all that. But as time goes on, I, I I it really does stay with me that 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 this kind of stuff has a cycle clearly has some kind of an effect. But Absolutely. Sorry about the woman saying, where did I get my strength? That's from? exactly right. It's about, I mean, it it gives it, it it in a sense gives people, I think, a false reassurance of their personality or their behavior. Right. Say, because it's the classic, oh, it's in my genes. Right. And it also can lead to people saying, I'm not culpable because it's in my genes. Right. I can't excise the genes. Um, I I actually, I've never, I have to be honest, I've never done those tests because I don't care. I'm a mutt. I'm proud to be a mutt. Uh, and I, it makes no sense to me to find out what percentage mutt I am from which bit of mutt land on, on the, on the universe. But because the Americans, and I think much more than any other, because we're a melting pot, there is this desire, there is this fetish to find out where we're from, right? And to say, I'm 38% German, I'm 17.5% British, right? And and I think, and, and Patrick, if you talk, you know, I just spoke to Patrick several months ago, he came back to give a talk. And I mean, what does it mean to be 38% German, right? I mean, what century are we talking about, right? I mean, Germany changed. A lot. They started a lot of wars. We had to restrict the size of the country, right? Are we talking about Prussia? Because if there's Prussia, there'll be a higher percentage of Latvia, Lithuania. Are we talking Bavarian German? I mean, so there's a lot. Of, and that's why they're trying to get, that's why they have now have tests that they can say, you're from this part of Germany, right? So that they actually have, they, they, they've been able to provide more of a fine-grained map for certain regions where Americans are dying to find out precisely where in Germany or Italy or, or France uh, or, or Ireland do I come from. I personally think there's more harm than good in these things. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's uh, uh, such a, uh, a strange um, uh, thing because, like, identity is sort of communal and it's cultural rather than I mean like I just find it like so, uh uh so odd that people um want to uh like make something biological that is like actually like you know like from uh the world around you um uh yeah I I, I know this is much more to say um yeah. I'm always reminded of uh this this exchange between um uh, uh, Bill Clinton and uh, this indigenous writer Sherman Alexie, where uh, uh, the uh, Clinton met him and said, you know, being a jovial politician who like tries to make connections, says, you know, like, oh, by the way, I'm uh, one thirty-two Cherokee, and uh, Alexie said, uh, Mr. President, uh, every white person I've ever met is one thirty-two Cherokee. 
I think, I think puts that uh, line of thought uh, in its place, but uh, and that might be a good place to. to sort I'll just, of... I guess, just bring just to give one. I mean, if I, there's one good, there's one good thing about doing the genetic testing, although the population that should listen to it won't listen to it, which is you had a lot of right wing groups who wanted to argue for purity of of, of whites, right? For example, in 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 places like Idaho in the United States. And they would do, and so they swore by these tasks, like, this is great, we can prove to everybody that we're white, 47 and a half billion generations. They can't go back that far, brother. Um, and they find out there, there's no such thing as a pure race of individual, and that some of them had African-American ancestry. So then they went on kind of like, they then joined the group saying, oh, this is all crap, it's all, you know. So it's interesting how that for the far right that wanted these things to work, it didn't work out for them. Yeah, well, I mean, th th that in itself, like, is a good example of, like, how much race is um, uh, cultural rather than a biological. Absolutely thing. right. That's because right. Because in the That's United exactly States, right. like, uh, for, a lot, for going back at least to the 1930s, if not earlier, claiming some distant indigenous ancestry has always been, like, you know, something, uh, it's, it's a way of actually a trump card for yeah. the, uh, especially the, uh, you know, like um, older Anglo-Saxon. It's a way of saying, you know, my family has been here so long that Pocahontas is my great, 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 great grandma. Yeah. 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 But, but like, you know, these, the same people would never like, would be horrified to discover that their great, great grandfather was a slave, African-American slave. And so um, uh, the, the, um, and actually, I, I think uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, African American politician uh, Adam Clayton Powell uh, took advantage of this when he was a young man of uh, claiming to be Cherokee so he could attend like a uh, uh, segregated yes. university. Right, right. <laughs> so, so uh, which is again an all reminder of like to the extent to which race has always been, you know, like a cultural as well as a, a, right. a, a biological phenomenon. And the way in which like one of the dangers of all this stuff, and I think your paper brings this out, is the way in which. Um, uh, yeah, you know, it's valuable to know as much uh, scientific information about everybody, and one wants to know that, but the, the actual practice of capitalism will be to reify and replicate, you know, existing... Pre-existing categories. Yeah, existing categories, and, and not complicate them, and not... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, anyways, I, I, I think this is a probably a pretty good place to sort of like add, end on. We've got a little bit long, but I think a very fruitful and, and deep uh, discussion. Uh, I want to thank uh, um, uh, both uh, uh, Professor Jackson, Miles, and Doug Bell. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, thank you to both of you. Thanks, thanks to both of you. Thanks. 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 Thanks.